Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thomas Corbett was a troubled man. He was born in London in 1832, although he emigrated to New York City while he was still a boy. He eventually moved to Troy, New York, where he found work as an apprentice hatter. The job of hatter was considered a good, stable career for a young man looking to make his mark in the world. But at the same time, it was also a surprisingly dangerous one. Hatters were often exposed to fumes from mercury nitrate, which was used in the treatment of fur to create felt. But excessive exposure to those fumes could have terrible consequences. Symptoms included brain damage, hallucinations, psychosis, and nervous twitching, which was sometimes known as hatter's shakes. In fact, this problem was so prevalent, it actually inspired Lewis Carroll to create the character of the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. But despite the dangers inherent in his chosen profession, for a time, life appeared to be on the upswing for Thomas. He met a girl, got married, and settled down. But before long, his life took a tragic turn when both his wife and infant daughter died in childbirth. Something broke inside Thomas after that. He tried to drown his sorrows in the bottle. He drank his way throughout New England before one fateful day when he happened upon a street corner preacher in Boston who convinced him to give up drinking and join the church. He grew his hair and beard out just like Jesus and allowed himself to be baptized. It was then that he took the name of the city where he was born again, calling himself Boston Corbett from then on. But although the church helped launch Boston Corbett on a new path in life, his behavior would remain forever eccentric, to put it mildly. One summer day in 1858, while he was ministering on a street corner, Boston Corbett caught the eye of a couple of prostitutes, which produced a certain sinful reaction in himself that he did not appreciate one bit. So Boston did what seemed like the only logical thing to him. He went home, took a pair of scissors, snipped an incision under his scrotum, then removed both his testicles before heading out to a prayer meeting. Now, if that doesn't sound crazy enough, he actually refused to check himself into a hospital right away and only went to seek medical attention after his prayer meeting was done and he'd had a chance to stop off first for dinner. In 1861, the Confederates attacked Fort Sumter. This prompted the now-heeled Boston Corbett to join the fight for the Union. Corbett considered himself fiercely patriotic, but his devotion to the church still came first in his life, which managed to cause trouble for him in his army career. For starters, he wasn't happy the army made him cut his Jesus locks. He also repeatedly argued with his commanding officers over their own Christianity as well as their command decisions. At one point, he was even court-martialed and scheduled to be shot, although someone showed some leniency later on and simply kicked him out of the army. But despite that, 
Boston Corbett still managed to re-enlist three times. During the war, he was once captured by the infamous Confederate Colonel John Mosby and his raiders, better known as the Grey Ghosts. Mosby had admired Corbett's bravery, and rather than execute him on the spot, he sent him to Andersonville Prison in south-central Georgia. Andersonville was a notorious hellhole. It had been built to house 10,000 prisoners, but at its peak, it held over three times that number, almost a third of whom never made it out of the prison alive. Boston Corbett did manage to survive his prison stint, and he was eventually paroled in November of 1864. He left prison with a laundry list of ailments that included scurvy, rheumatism, and dysentery. But after recuperating through the final months of the war, he ultimately went back and rejoined his regiment. Then on April 15, 1865, the unthinkable happened. A stage actor and Confederate sympathizer named John Wilkes Booth snuck up behind President Abraham Lincoln in his box at Ford's Theater and shot him point-blank in the back of the head with a Derringer. Booth made the 12-foot leap to the stage below, coming down hard and breaking his leg. But the pain didn't stop him. He stood up and defiantly shouted to the horrified crowd the Latin phrase, Sic semper tyrannis, thus ever to tyrants. Then he rushed out a back exit and escaped into the night. After an overnight vigil, President Abraham Lincoln died early the following morning. It was a crime that shocked the nation. A $100,000 bounty was placed on Booth's head. The government turned to Boston Corbett's unit, the 16th New York Cavalry, to hunt down Booth and his conspirators. John Wilkes Booth, along with a fellow Confederate sympathizer named David Harold, fled on horseback through Maryland into Virginia. They stopped very briefly at the Surratt House, a tavern in Clinton, Maryland, to collect some weapons and supplies. They headed south after that, racing for 14 miles to Waldorf, Maryland, before the pain grew too much for Booth and he was forced to stop off at the home of Dr. Samuel Mudd to have his broken leg set. They left Dr. Mudd's house the following morning. The pair spent several days trekking through the backwoods and the swamp, trying to make their way to friendly territory in the south. On April 24th, 12 days after Lincoln's assassination, Boston Corbett's troops managed to track Booth to Garrett's farm in Port Royal, Virginia, where they cornered him in the barn. Twenty-six Union soldiers surrounded the barn. David Harold began freaking out and told Booth he didn't want to die. Booth kicked Harold out of the barn and decided to go it alone. Harold would be tried and hanged ten weeks later. Booth chose to stand his ground. This would be his last and greatest performance. Or was it? The official story goes that one of the Union soldiers set the barn on fire in order to smoke Booth out. Then an impatient Boston Corbett crept up to the barn, and despite being given explicit orders to take Booth alive, chose instead to kill the assassin by firing a bullet into his neck. At first, Corbett's superiors were furious that he had defied a direct order. But after word reached the newspapers about what Boston had done, he was spared a court-martial and instead hailed as a national hero. But is any of that what really happened? There are those who believe that not only did Boston Corbett get the wrong man that day, but that John Wilkes Booth was acting as part of a grand conspiracy, perhaps orchestrated by the Confederate Secret Service, and that they aided his escape. 
To this very day, there are people who believe that John Wilkes Booth actually lived for another 40 years. I'm Nate Hale, and I didn't like the play either. And this is The Conspirators. Something that's not commonly known about John Wilkes Booth is that assassinating the president wasn't his first plan. It wasn't even his second. Considering he was quite a popular actor at the time, many of his pro-Confederate views he publicly expressed got him in some trouble throughout his life, even before he began concocting his plans for President Lincoln. His first idea was a plan to kidnap Lincoln from his box at Ford's Theater on January 18th. He and his men came up with the rather cockamamie scheme to tie the president up and lower him to the stage below. But it was Lincoln himself who quashed that plan before it could go too far, when the president chose to stay home that night because of a storm. In mid-March, Booth managed to get himself invited to Lincoln's second inauguration by his then-girlfriend, the daughter of a prominent senator. Booth got close enough to lunge at Lincoln, but police were able to restrain him. Booth told them he had merely stumbled, and they believed him. Booth was famous, after all, and no one could believe that he would do something so foolhardy as attempt to harm the President of the United States. Pretty much every time Booth made plans involving President Lincoln, he always seemed to stick with what he knew best, the theater. In mid-March, Booth met with six accomplices to discuss yet another kidnapping attempt during a play performance. This time, Booth decided to kidnap Lincoln following a performance of Still Waters Run Deep at a local hospital. This plan fell apart, though, when Lincoln decided not to head home along the road where Booth and his men waited for him, and instead traveled to a local hotel to present an American flag to the state's governor. To add insult to injury, it just so happened to be the very same hotel where John Wilkes Booth was living at the time. Then on April 11th, Lincoln gave a speech that sealed his fate. During this speech, he expressed his intention to allow educated African Americans and black veterans the right to vote. This so infuriated Booth that he decided kidnapping was too good for Abraham Lincoln and that the man needed to die. Booth came up with a grand plan to take down the entire federal government in one fell swoop. On the same night he went to kill Lincoln, he sent another assassin, Lewis Powell, to take out the Secretary of State, William Seward. He sent another conspirator, George Atzerod, to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson. But Atzerod chickened out and Lewis Powell only managed to injure Secretary of State Seward, not kill him. But just how wide did this conspiracy go? And is there any proof that the man who Boston Corbett shot inside that burning barn was not John Wilkes Booth? Surprisingly, there's more evidence to support this than you might think. Perhaps the very first person to question Booth's identity that final day was none other than David Harold, the man who Booth booted out of the burning barn. After Corbett shot the man presumed to be Booth in the neck, other soldiers dragged him out into the barnyard while he was still alive. David Harold reportedly turned to a Union Army lieutenant named Edward Doherty and asked him, who was that man that was shot in there? Doherty told him, you know very well who that was. No, I don't know who that was, Harold replied. He told Doherty he thought the man's name was Boyd. You have to wonder why Harold would claim something like that. He was already in Union custody, and he had nothing to gain from lying. Yet he still insisted the man's name was Boyd, not Booth. 
There are some researchers who claim that the man the soldiers dragged out into the barnyard that night didn't even look like Booth. A researcher named Nathan Orlowek claims the man that they killed that night was older than Booth and had reddish hair, even though Booth had black hair. Orlowek believes that the real Booth fled the barn two days earlier, before Boston Corbett's men got there. Keep in mind, some researchers suggest Booth may have dyed his hair red and shaved his mustache as a disguise while he was still on the lam. But why would anyone go along with a conspiracy to fake Booth's death? One theory goes that there was so much political pressure on Secretary of War Edwin Stanton that he was willing to close the books on the assassination even at the cost of allowing the real killer to go free. The Confederate Army had officially surrendered only five days before Lincoln's fateful night in Ford's Theater. Confederate President Jefferson Davis was scraping together all the gold he could get his hands on with the idea that he might start the fight up again. At the time, the country was very much still in chaos. If we are to believe that Edwin Stanton was aware that the man Boston Corbett shot was not John Wilkes Booth, he did so in order to hold the fragile integrity of the United States together. Something else to consider was all the reward money that was up for grabs to the soldiers who were present the day the man everyone said was Booth was shot and killed. Each of those men, including Boston Corbett, took home thousands of dollars in reward money after that night. Money they wouldn't have gotten if it turned out they shot the wrong man. Okay, so, if we allow ourselves to consider that the dead man wasn't really Booth, then who was he? One possibility is he was a Confederate soldier named James W. Boyd. Remember, Boyd is the name David Harold said he thought was that of the man shot in the barn that night. Boyd was a captain in the 6th Tennessee Infantry, who had been captured by the Union Army during the war. And there are a few other things that were unusual about the man. For one, he was a spy for the Union. His job had been to gather information about Confederate smuggling operations in Tennessee. Perhaps even more interesting, two months before Lincoln's assassination, Secretary Edwin Stanton ordered that Boyd be transferred to Washington, D.C. for unknown reasons. After that, no more records exist of what happened to him. There was something else about Boyd to consider. He was a dead ringer for John Wilkes Booth. Photos of James Boyd show that if his hair was a little darker, he'd look practically identical to Booth. For this version of the conspiracy to be believed, Secretary Stanton would need a body to pass off as Booth. And Boyd seems like a likely candidate. Considering the unusual circumstances surrounding Booth's autopsy, it kind of makes you wonder if there was something more going on. Records show that Booth's body was taken from Garrett's farm to the USS Montauk, an ironclad ship. There were 13 people present at the autopsy, all of whom were connected to the War Department and the Navy Department in some way. There was a photographer present that day, but he was only allowed to take one photograph, which, along with the negative, was turned over to Secretary of War Stanton and promptly lost sometime thereafter. Although at the time of the autopsy, the Montauk was carrying a few other conspirators tied to Lincoln's assassination, none of them were brought forward to positively identify Booth's body. One person who did get a look at the body was a prominent Washington, D.C. surgeon named Dr. John Frederick May. Dr. May actually met John Wilkes Booth while he was still alive and even performed surgery on him. But when May was asked to identify the body, he initially told the witnesses it didn't look anything like Booth to him. May eventually changed his tune and signed off on the body being that of John Wilkes Booth. 
but not until he was put under pressure by those present the importance that he put a swift end to this matter for the good of the country. Now, there is one definitive way we could put an end to these rumors that the body in question was or was not Booth. During the autopsy, both the cervical vertebrae and a small section of the spinal cord were removed and preserved. Both of those pieces still exist and are currently in the collection of the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Maryland. A DNA test with some of Booth's descendants could prove the truth one way or the other. There are members of Booth's family today who doubt the official story and have offered up their DNA for testing. But so far the courts have refused to allow testing of the samples from the body purported to be Booth. If Booth did live on past his presumed death day, then where did he go? There are at least three possibilities. One is that he assumed the identity of James Boyd. Although there aren't any historical records about Boyd after 1865, so that one's a bit tough to track down. Another theory says that Booth assumed the identity of John B. Wilkes and left the United States. Now, of course, right away the very name John B. Wilkes jumps right out at you, since it's so close to John Wilkes Booth. And would anyone be so brazen or so dumb to take on a fake identity that's practically the same as the one you're leaving behind? There's a researcher named Chuck Huppert who believes that's exactly what happened. He says that Booth met an Englishman named John B. Wilkes who was born in Sheffield, England in 1822. Huppert believes the real Booth stole Wilkes's identity and fled to India, where he remained living until his death in 1883. It may sound far-fetched, but when you look at the evidence, it has to make you wonder. For one thing, there's a photo of John B. Wilkes that looks identical to John Wilkes Booth. If James Boyd could have passed for Booth's brother, Wilkes could have been his identical twin. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. After John B. Wilkes died in 1883, Huppert claims the man had some very unusual stipulations in his will. Unusual in that he actually left money to some of John Wilkes Booth's friends and family. This included $25,000 to a woman named Ogarita Rosalie Wilkes. This was a woman who throughout her life claimed to be the daughter of Isla Mills and John Wilkes Booth. Another $25,000 went to another alleged daughter of John Wilkes Booth, a woman named Mary Louise Turner was said to be the offspring of Booth's mistress, Ella Turner. There was also a $1,000 a week bequest from the will of John B. Wilkes that went to Henry Johnson, Booth's personal valet, who actually escaped with Booth up to Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Now, of course you have to wonder why John Byron Wilkes would be leaving money to a bunch of people related to John Wilkes Booth. The obvious answer is that the man really was Booth. A couple big problems with this theory, though, are that John B. Wilkes's will isn't signed. So without a signature for handwriting analysis to compare against that of John Wilkes Booth, it makes it difficult to corroborate much of this information. The other issue is there really isn't any way to authenticate the photograph that is allegedly of John B. Wilkes. For all we know, it's not a real photo of the man at all, and someone over the years has tried pulling a fast one and misidentifying a real photo of John Wilkes Booth as John Byron Wilkes. There is yet another possible identity that John Wilkes Booth may have assumed after his alleged death, it's a story I touched on in an earlier episode, but it's such a bizarre tale that it bears repeating here. 
There are some people who believe that after 1865, John Wilkes Booth assumed the identity of John St. Helen and continued living for many years after. Some researchers say that Booth, now calling himself St. Helen, arrived in Franklin County, Tennessee in 1872, where he fell in love with and married a local girl named Louisa Payne. What's interesting here is that according to descendants of the couple, is that when St. Helen fessed up to his new bride about his identity, she demanded that they go to the courthouse and get remarried using Booth's real name. There's a marriage certificate one researcher dug up from the Franklin County Courthouse that clearly shows John Wilkes Booth's name and signature on the document seven years after his supposed demise. So the story goes that the newlyweds moved to Memphis and tried to settle down, but soon Louisa grew homesick and returned to her family. Booth told Louisa he would follow her, but he never did. So where did Booth go? Well, in 1877, a young Granbury, Texas lawyer named Finus L. Bates was summoned to the bedside of a dying acquaintance. Fun fact, Finus L. Bates just so happens to be the grandfather of actress Kathy Bates. Back in 1877, Finus L. Bates entered the room and found a doctor checking the pulse of a dying patient, a man named John St. Helen. The doctor told Bates that St. Helen didn't have much time left and that he asked to speak to him privately. After the doctor left them, the dying man beckoned Bates to come closer. Then he whispered to him, I'm dying. My name is John Wilkes Booth, and I am the assassin of Abraham Lincoln. Bates claimed that Booth told him Vice President Andrew Johnson had masterminded the plot to kill Lincoln and had been a key part of faking his death. He said that a patsy had actually died on Garrett's farm back in 1865 and that he had been living as a free man ever since under various identities. There was one major problem with John St. Helen's amazing deathbed confession, namely that he didn't die. He actually got better and skipped town, and Finus L. Bates didn't hear anything else about him for another quarter century. In January 1903, Finus Bates read a story in a Memphis newspaper about a drifter named David E. George who checked himself into an Enid, Oklahoma hotel room and committed suicide by drinking a lethal dose of arsenic. What caught Bates' attention was that David E. George allegedly failed to commit suicide nine months earlier by drinking poison. Only then he made the startling confession that he was, quote, the one who killed the greatest man who ever lived. I am John Wilkes Booth. Side-by-side -side illustrations of Booth and David E. George did bear a remarkable similarity. Reporters were quick to publish a statement by Booth's nephew, Junius Brutus Booth III, that George did look a lot like his famous uncle. Although it should be pointed out that Junius Booth wasn't born until three years after his uncle's alleged death and never laid eyes on the man. Finus Bates rushed to Enid, Oklahoma and found the now-embalmed body at W.B. Pennyman's Mortuary and Furniture Store. He tried to claim the body, but Pennyman had already seen the corpse as a potential moneymaker and refused to let it go. Instead, he dressed the body up in a suit and parked him in a chair in the mortuary's front parlor, with his glass eyes staring openly at the newspaper in his lap. Thanks to a massive amount of arsenic in the body, both from the embalming process as well as the poison the man had used to kill himself, over time the corpse mummified. In 1907, Bates published a 309-page book titled The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth, written for the correction of history. By now he had finally managed to claim the mummy for himself. Evidently Bates saw dollar signs too because he began renting the body out to carnivals and state fairs. According to a 1938 article published in the Saturday Evening Post, the mummy seemed to bring bad luck to whomever owned it. The magazine claimed that every showman who owned the mummy was financially ruined, 
1920, a circus train carrying the mummy crashed on its way to San Diego, killing eight people. Not long after, the mummy was kidnapped and held for ransom. There were even a group of Union veterans who banded together and vowed to lynch the mummy. Finasel Bates died in 1923. During his final years, he actually tried selling the mummy, but couldn't find any takers willing to meet his price. He once even tried to sell it to Henry Ford for $1,000. After his death, his widow sold the mummy to Carnival showman William Evans. After Evans finally quit the carnival business, he brought the mummy with him back to his Idaho potato farm and began selling tickets to come see the body of the man who shot Lincoln. A Lincoln conspiracy researcher eventually convinced Evans to take the mummy back out on the road. But this new national tour fizzled, and Salt Lake City actually kicked Evans out for teaching false history. Then the town of Big Spring, Texas fined him another $50 for transporting a corpse without a license. In 1930, the mummy changed hands again when another carnival owner named John Harkin bought it for $5,000. Harkin loaded the mummy into his truck, and the two of them began touring the country together. They even lay at night on adjacent bunks. Harkin made the open promise to pay $1,000 to the first man who could prove without a shadow of a doubt that the body was not that of John Wilkes Booth. He liked to boast that no one ever collected the prize. In 1931, a group of Chicago doctors x-rayed and examined the body. They reported that the body contained a fractured leg, neck scar, and broken thumb that were all consistent with injuries sustained by Booth. It should be pointed out that Dr. Mudd reportedly set a broken bone in Booth's left leg, while the corpse showed damage to the right. From 1937 through the 1950s, the mummy went on the road with Jay Gould's Million Dollar Circus. It went missing sometime in the late 1970s, and some people have claimed it's now in the possession of a private collector. The fact of the matter is, though, without a proper DNA match, we may never know the truth about whether or not John Wilkes Booth really died on Garrett's farm back in 1865. Numerous attempts have been made to exhume Booth's body from the family plot, but thus far, all attempts have failed in courts. Strangely, there is yet another mystery tied to the death of John Wilkes Booth. Remember Boston Corbett? Well, things didn't go too well for him in the years that followed after the night he is supposed to have shot Booth. For a time, he became known as a national hero. Matthew Brady, the most famous photographer of the era, took pictures of him in his dress fatigues that were duplicated and sold on an early version of trading cards. For a few years, Corbett went on a publicity tour. Reed tell his story at meeting houses and Sunday schools. But over time, Corbett's celebrity began to fade, and he had to return to some of his earlier professions to make money. He worked for a time as a silk hat finisher, then as a lay preacher. Over the years, though, his fortune dwindled and he became increasingly paranoid. He was forever tormented by the conspiracy theories that said Booth was still alive. He even came to believe there were groups of Southern sympathizers who were after him for revenge. In 1878, Corbett grew tired of all the death threats, so he hitched up his wagon and headed west. One soldier who took him in for the night later wrote that Corbett was crazy and was in constant fear that assassins were after him. He soon settled in Cloud City, Kansas, where he dug a hole in the ground, threw up some rock walls, and moved in. He called this hole in the ground his dugout. Anyone who got close to his hidey hole, he drove away at gunpoint. Corbett's paranoid behavior and the way he kept brandishing guns at everyone would eventually get him sent to a mental asylum in Topeka. But his story didn't end there. On May 26, 1888, while the inmates were exercising in the yard, Corbett managed to steal a horse and ride off. 
Corbett escaped from there to Neodosha, Kansas, where he met up with a former army buddy who helped him out. It's said that from there, Boston Corbett hopped a train bound for Mexico, although no witnesses ever came forward claiming to have seen Corbett on the train. After that, he was never heard from again. There were, of course, rumors as to Boston Corbett's fate. One story told that he finally met up with a group of the unnamed assassins who had been dogging him throughout the remainder of his life. Another tale had him moving to Hinckley, Minnesota, where he perished in a fire in 1894. In the early 1900s, the Federal Pension Bureau received a request from someone claiming to be Boston Corbett, demanding his pension checks. But investigators who met with the man claiming to be Corbett were unable to get many details from him that could prove his identity. Also, it was noted this old man was six feet tall, a full eight inches taller than the original Boston Corbett. The imposter turned out to be a one-time patent medicine salesman named John, and no, I'm not making this up, his name was also Corbett. He went to jail for fraud. No one knows what ultimately happened to Boston Corbett. It seems somehow fitting that the final memorial to the man is just as odd as he was in life. Back in 1958, the town of Concordia, Kansas put up a fence around his last official home, the hole in the ground he lived in for a number of years. A Boy Scout troop put up a stone plaque on the location noting the hole's historical significance, along with the words, Boston Corbett Dugout. The plaque contains the outlines of two six-shooters. At one time, those outlines held a pair of real revolvers. But sometime over the years, they were stolen and never replaced. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. For anyone feeling a sense of deja vu, I know I spoke a little bit about some of this story in an earlier episode, but upon doing some additional research, I realized there was a lot more to the story of John Wilkes Booth and Boston Corbett than I had previously reported. There was just so much craziness there, I had to tell the whole story. I wanted to remind you that if you like what I've been doing here and want to help support the show, then you can always sign up for our Patreon account. I have a new supporter to thank as well. Thanks a bunch to Paul for helping keep the lights on. Patrons to the Conspirators get access to all sorts of nifty rewards like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Besides Apple, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.